Hello and welcome to Legal Frontiers, the podcast about the intersection between law and the transnational challenges of our time, hosted by the School of Transnational Law of Peking University. My name is Stephen Minas, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Professor Ray Campbell. Ray, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, let's uh, let's begin, Ray. Uh, just if I could ask you to uh, introduce yourself, tell us a bit about your work. Okay, so um, I'm a full professor at uh, STL, and I've been there for uh, ten years. Uh, this is my eleventh year teaching. Uh, I came to STL. Um, you know, rather uh, long in the tooth for being a, a new law professor because I'd been a partner at a couple of uh, major law firms in the United States and I'd run a startup company, a uh, venture funded company for about 10 years. Uh, and what I teach uh, draws on some of that background. I teach civil procedure, which is, you know, how you bring a lawsuit that's not a criminal lawsuit and how you defend it in the United States. I teach law and innovation, which is related to what we're talking about today, and I teach cross-cultural negotiation. Uh, my research uh, is uh, a mix of uh, some civil procedure, uh, but more uh, on how technology and other uh, forces are changing legal services, uh, changing the way legal practice is conducted, and also providing new competitors to legal practice. And that agenda, that question of how technology, but also changing business models is, is impacting the legal profession, legal services, but also legal education, uh, is indeed what, what we're discussing today. So a few years ago, uh, you reviewed a book uh, by Richard Susskind and Daniel Susskind on the future of the professions, uh, talking about the professions, not just law, but including law. Uh, and in that book, the Susskinds wrote, uh, and I quote, by and large, our professions are unaffordable, underexploiting technology, disempowering, ethically challengeable, underperforming, and inscrutable. It's a pretty grim assessment, isn't it? It's it's a very grim assessment, but uh, uh, he's not alone in uh, in making those charges. Um, uh, all the professions, not just law, uh, have issues now with delivering services and living up to the sort of professional model of professionals being in it, not just for money, but uh, to provide a service that society needs and to do it in a way where they make an adequate living, but uh, are not out to make, you know, rock star incomes. And, um, you know, the ability to do that has been challenged by a lot of changes in the environment. And I think the desire to do that has been challenged. And so professions aren't succeeding in meeting their part of their implicit contract with society. So if we look in particular at the legal profession, what might be some of those challenges and how does, how does innovation feature, I guess, both in the challenges to the profession, to individual professionals, but also the response to try and make a legal profession, legal services uh, live up to some of its, its classical objectives? Well, I think most people would agree that the, the biggest problem with legal services now, uh, although there are a lot of problems, but, but probably the, the most chronic is access to justice, you know, access to legal services. You know, even people like you and I, you know, who are professors, you know, paid, 
you know, relatively well and living, you know, secure middle-class lifestyles, but have a very hard time paying for any sort of extended uh, legal process in the United States. Uh, you know, when I left practice in 1997, I was billing at about $350 an hour. My colleagues who are my generation are billing upwards of $1,000 an hour. And, 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 and even new associates are billing, you know, what I built, you know, $300 an hour. So the price can get very high very quickly. And, and while there are smaller law firms that are less expensive, uh, other than really routine generic services, it's very hard to afford. And then you move away from people like us, you know, who are economically privileged, and you look at, you know, people at anywhere near the margins of society who may be facing uh, eviction from their apartment, who may be seeking immigration, uh, you know, refugee status, who may uh, have been uh, treated badly by their employer. Uh, it is really difficult for them to get uh, access to justice unless, you know, it's one of the small number of, you know, kinds of cases where, uh, you know, a personal injury lawyer will, will take them on on a contingency basis. So I think that's the biggest problem. I, I think the the cost problem is also uh, something certainly that major corporations are very concerned about. You know, just the overall cost and efficiency of legal services uh, is under attack and has been under attack for a long time. We're an increasingly legally regulated society. You know, the administrative state has spread around the world. There's, you know, now multi uh, transnational, multinational exposure to multiple legal systems. And it's expensive to stay in compliance. Uh, so the expense, so even for those who can afford it, I think is a, is a very big challenge. Uh, I, I think those are, in, in, in the face of all of that, I think you know, there's a point that Susskind makes, which is that we underexploit technology. Law is, by its nature, uh, somewhat of a backwards-looking profession. You know, we, we look at, at, at how previous cases have been decided. We look at how legislators way back when, you know, wrote a statute and how that's been thought about and applied over the years. Uh, and the way we do things is very traditional. You know, we read books and we organize thoughts in our head and we put words on paper, uh, you know, whether we're a corporate lawyer or a litigator. And we have not really uh, taken full advantage of the technology. Uh, uh, there's movement that way, but it's um, for a variety of reasons it hasn't happened as quickly as people may have thought it, it, it should. And on the topic of technology and how it can bring change to the legal profession and perhaps, uh, perhaps make the legal profession better for those it is serving, the current crisis of the pandemic and lockdowns has, has offered a massive experiment in real time as to how one can use technology uh, when the traditional methods of meetings, uh, physical court cases, etc., uh, are no longer available. So when you look at the experience of this year, uh, do you see the changes that have been made in the profession as, as a one-off, as an aberration? Uh, we're all just gonna go back to normal? Or do you see the profession learning from the experience of technology this year? Well, I, I mean, I think some of both. Uh, I mean, I, I think the first thing to note is that the pandemic really uh, pushed traditional processes online. Uh, and that's different from 
the online dispute resolutions that have been created, uh, you know, for example, at eBay, uh, you know, by Colin Rule or Shannon Salter's uh, civil uh, dispute resolution system in British Columbia, where they have designed, designed from the ground up online dispute resolution systems optimized for the online environment, uh, you know, and really designed, thoughtfully designed with the user in mind, the non-lawyer user in mind. COVID-19, you know, we haven't done that. We've taken our traditional lawyer and judge oriented uh, formats and we've pushed them into, you know, the virtual zone. And so sometimes that has worked pretty well and sometimes uh, it has not. For example, uh, I, I talked to a lawyer who tried a pretty substantial uh, bench trial. Uh, there was someone was seeking an injunction to stop a hundred million dollar plus uh, project. Uh, and uh, it was litigated before a, a judge in the United States. Uh, and she felt that um, for that particular kind of case, which was pretty technical, it worked pretty well because it was a matter of getting documents and expert testimony before a judge. But she didn't think a, a, a jury trial could succeed at all. Even then, you know, there, there are issues uh, with how effectively you could put it on. On the other hand, the same attorney didn't think that lawyers will ever go back to doing summary judgment motions or, uh, you know, routine, you know, motions for extension of time or any of that before a live judge. I mean, it just doesn't make sense for people to travel, you know, sometimes long distances uh, to argue a attorney before the judge motion that can just as effectively be, be done online. So uh, I think all over the economy, things that, that were previously offline uh, have been pushed online, you know, whether it's education or telemedicine or law. And I think some of what is traditional that's been pushed online uh, will go back. I mean, people will not be doing uh, major trials, I think, online. But what I think has already been happening that will continue and perhaps people will be more receptive to it is the kind of ground up uh, purpose built uh, online dispute resolution. You know, Richard Susskind, you know, whose quote you read is now uh, spending most of his time promoting online dispute resolution uh, because it does provide a superior way to resolve, uh, you know, high volume, low dollar kinds of disputes. Uh, you know, you can have the software uh, collect the evidence in an easily digestible form. It can use artificial intelligence and other techniques to sort of guide people toward, you know, resolving it on their own. Uh, and it's going to be just as dignified as uh, a small claims court or, or something like that, which are not the kind of courts we think of when we think of the majesty of, of justice. So I think I think it'll open people up to the idea that we should explore this and some of the experiments that are ongoing uh, will be pushed, you know, more broadly around the world. Yes. And just on the question of the majesty of justice, uh, you have written uh, that a court that seems no more august than TripAdvisor or Siri uh, may not fulfill that public function of signaling to society uh, the, the seriousness and the majesty of the law. So I guess that's that's another element of this question. As things go online, does some of that social signaling uh, get lost? And that's very interesting because, 
you know, when we talk about online dispute resolution, the assumptions, you know, Richard Susskin talks about courts as a service rather than a place. And people talk about it as really resolving disputes. And that, of course, is something courts do, and it's at the core of, of what they do. But courts are more than that. I mean, they are, uh, you know, judicial architecture, you know, is, is a sort of a unique field, you know, and, and buildings are built not just to be functional for resolving disputes, but to communicate the power of the state, to communicate that the state has a monopoly on, on forcing people to comply with the law. And, and I think that is a challenge that will have to be confronted when we go online. But at the same time, I think if, if uh, we start at the bottom and we provide good resolution of small dollar disputes, it will be at least as august as your typical small claims court. And the challenge will be how high up can we push it and what can we do with the interfaces and the design to capture that sense of courts as reflections of the power and majesty of the state. Now, in terms of how technology is changing the practice of dispute resolution and courts in particular, uh, you have written about the emerging role of artificial intelligence and how that is affecting the work of courts and judges. So I wonder if you could comment a bit on, on the role of AI, and, and I know there are a lot of different ideas here about where the future is leading, but what are your thoughts? Okay, so AI um, is important already uh, in legal services, and it will become more important uh, over time, although I, I don't think we're heading to a world where we are totally displaced by artificial intelligence. But already, there's two kinds of artificial intelligence. One is sort of rules-based, if then, then X, uh, where you build huge logic trees and people, uh, you know, identify to the artificial intelligence what the facts on the ground are, and then it lets you know what the answer is. Uh, this kind of old school, uh, you know, early, you know, artificial intelligence is being used in, in many ways, but I think most successfully to create forms, to create documents. Uh, so, yeah, legal Zoom uh, produces more legal documents than any law firm on earth, and 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 more than uh, you know many 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 law firms put together, and it does it through this kind of artificial intelligence. It does it in an area where the problem is confined. You know, you want a will, or you know, you want a lease, so it doesn't have to sort of separate out exactly what the problem is, and you can tell it what state you're in. You can tell it, you know, who gets you know the you know, the dining room table and so forth. And it, it can put together a will that is perfectly legally enforceable in whatever jurisdiction you're in. Now, if you have unusual problems, you know, if you're wealthy enough so that there's sophisticated tax issues, or if you have, uh, you know, children or dependents with special needs that you're going to need trust, LegalZoom can't do that and shouldn't be used for that. But for the simple, you know, I've, I'm a middle-class person. I just want to know leave a, a clear record of who gets what, you know, LegalZoom does that very successfully and it does it with artificial intelligence. The same kind of technology is being used in big magic circle and Wall Street firms to create documents that they use. You know, associates will go online and they will do something very similar to what you do on LegalZoom and sort of feeding in the parameters of, of what it is you need to create. And it will create the first draft of a document for you. Uh, and sometimes it will it will educate you. It will say, choose this version if you if you want to be very aggressive. Choose this version if you want to be not aggressive. 
Uh, here's why you would choose the, the aggressive version. Here's why you would not. So it can create the document for the associate and educate them at the same time. And that's happening all over the world as well. That same technology uh, with sufficient investment could be used for courts. I mean, there's no reason that many of the judicial documents that are created by courts, you know, from scheduling orders to resolutions of motions couldn't be uh, accelerated and handled more quickly with this kind of document creation, artificial intelligence. The other kind of artificial intelligence is based really on data. And it's really a, a matter of applying very sophisticated neural network algorithms to find relationships in data. Uh, and this is the kind of artificial software that runs Google Translate, for example. I mean, it doesn't understand French, it doesn't understand English, but having been through enough data, it, it knows that if you say mon frere, you're saying my brother. You know, so uh, it, it simply finds uh, associations of statistical validity. So this kind of software is still under really explosive development. Uh, there's a massive amounts of investment going into it. Uh, and, you know, we've seen it in, you know, IBM, for example, you know, has its software that won the game Jeopardy. Google has its software that defeated the world's best player of the strategy game Go. A long time ago, they defeated all the world's best chess players. So this software is, is being developed uh, and it's being developed to be able to uh, handle more uh, challenging tasks. Up till now, those tasks tend to be pretty specialized, you know, for example, translation or image recognition. But, you know, it's, 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 and, and, it, and it's not anytime soon going to be the kind of holistic uh, intelligence, a general intelligence uh, that we like to think, you know, we humans have. But it can be used for things like legal research. You know, there are a number of products on the market uh, where it will take a first pass through all of the legal text. And, you know, there's a program called Ross where you can ask it a question, what is the statute of limitations for torts in Minnesota? And it will come back with an answer with a percentage uh, a level of confidence. It will cite to cases, it will cite to statutes. So it does the, the kind of work that, you know, you might expect a young associate to do. Now, I haven't used it, but from people who have used it, I understand it's maybe not yet at the level where it's the best associate that you've ever had or would want to have. But nonetheless, it's, it's, it's useful and it's getting better. And that kind of technology is being built into uh, all the online legal research tools we use. And so that, that kind of intelligence is going to play a role. Uh, what we're not going to have is we're not going to have, you know, sort of science fiction you know, the robot judge where you come in and you tell it your story and it decides what is just uh, because we don't have that kind of artificial intelligence yet and whether we ever will uh, is, is open to speculation uh, and debate. It's, it, we just don't know. Uh, and even if we did, you know, then there's a question of do we really want to defer those kinds of questions to, a, you know, to an, what at best would be an alien intelligence. Uh, you know, the artificial intelligence doesn't think like humans. It's simply finding associations. It's looking backward. It's not really envision, envisioning the future. It doesn't do well with rapid changes in circumstances or new paradigms. It does well with when things are the way they've always been, finding very deep connections. But it, uh, you know, we may, but it's, it would be alien. Even if it achieved general intelligence, it would be more alien than someone from the planet Xantar. And we may not want that alien intelligence to 
uh, make important decisions for us. Yes. So short of the robot judge, uh, there is a growing role for AI in the courts, but there are interesting experiments in different parts of the world, and including in China, you, you've cited the, uh, the same type of case reference system, which, which is being used. Yeah, no, I mean, they, they will be very useful in uh, legal research. Uh, they will be very useful in uh, looking at a pattern of facts and saying, is the result that this judge is giving outside the normal uh, experience? Uh, and that, that can be useful. Uh, one, if you've got uh, judges who are not as well trained as you would want them to be, to give them a check before they make a mistake. It can also be useful in, in, in finding corruption. Uh, if, a, if you look at the, the facts and then you look at the result and it doesn't really make sense, uh, you may want to find out if there's some reason it doesn't make sense. Yes. Now, another factor that you've written about when it comes to uh, changing the delivery of legal services, uh, whether that's in, including new technologies or not, uh, is how the legal profession is regulated in different parts of the world. Now, is it fair to say that regulation can either facilitate beneficial changes to legal services or can perhaps hold them back? Uh, well, I, I think clearly it can do both. Um, so I, I looked at this, you know, really when I was just starting out as a professor. And one of the things that was interesting was that regulation has a big impact on services that are provided direct to consumers. Uh, because in most countries you have some sort of protected area for lawyers that lay people cannot compete in. In the United States, that's very broad. You can't give individualized legal advice. Uh, and so if you want to offer legal services to the public in the U.S., you have to dumb it down, which is something LegalZoom has done. So you can say, I'm not giving individualized legal advice. I'm just uh, advice. I'm just providing a legal form that they have to handle, you know, take it from there on their own. So it has a, it has a pretty significant impact on providing services to individuals. Has less of an impact on providing services to the corporate sector because the services are provided to a lawyer, you know, the general counsel or the uh, people under her. And it, you can, a lawyer can buy services from whomever they want and, and then incorporate those in what they provide to their clients. So, so it's not really been the problem with uh, adoption of technology for uh, corporate side. That said, you know, law firms, I think, are uh, most law firms, not all law firms, but most law firms are kind of reluctant to invest in and embrace technology because they make a lot of money selling hours. Uh, they cannot, in many areas, draw on an outside investment. So it, it makes it, you know, they're really kind of wedded to their traditional model. Uh, but you do see uh, some jurisdictions that are saying uh, we should encourage uh, the new technologies. We should in, in encourage the alternative service providers. So England and Wales uh, was really the first, uh, you know, quite, you know, more than 10 years ago when they passed the Legal Services Act and then implemented the ability to have alternative service providers who are non-lawyers, uh, maybe publicly held companies that provide legal services. And they can provide these through software uh, and technology, or they can provide them through non-lawyer human beings. And it, these are regulated, it's not an unregulated market, but the regula regulators allow non-lawyer service providers in. 
Uh, other jurisdictions, Singapore is a good example. Singapore is very aggressively uh, investing in uh, technology, uh, legal technology, and courting legal technology companies to come to Singapore. Singapore views rule of law as one of their competitive advantages in you know, Southeast Asia, and they want to get ahead of the curve on changes in legal services and have those headquartered in Singapore. So they are uh, uh, you know, investing, you know, venture money, they are running conferences, they are trying to attract companies, uh, they are allowing these things to happen so as to increase the profile of Singapore as a, as a innovative legal center. Yes, so innovation, of course, also includes innovation and regulation. Uh, a final question about change in the legal profession, including technology. Um, you, you've presented this research in different parts of the world. Are there legal Luddites out there? Are there legal professionals who don't want to know, aren't interested, would rather, thank you very much, everything just remains the same? Or is there a willingness from most people you talk to, to, to an extent, embrace uh, some of these uh, perhaps inevitable changes? Well, I think there are a lot of Luddites. I, I think it is, it is changing uh, somewhat. Richard Susskind, who's been predicting the end of lawyers since uh, the 1990s, that technology would take the place, uh, you know, goes to law firms and he explains why technology can can make lawyers as, as redundant as candle makers. That there's just other ways of solving the problem. You know, your problem is light. You know, so only a candle maker can make a candle, but there's other ways to provide light in a room and that, that is coming to law. And his statement is, it's very hard to persuade a room full of multimillionaires that they're doing it all wrong. Uh, you know, they look at what they're making. And I think it's also that there's not a lot of financial incentive. If I'm a 60-year-old or 55-year-old partner in a major law firm, if I pull too much money out of the partnership distribution, some of my high-ranking uh, producers will say, I'm not staying here. I'm not making as much as I want to. And they'll go down the street. Uh, and even if you're pushing it through, if you're 55, by the time it really pays out, you're going to be retired and someone else will be making money off of it. So the economics make it hard. Uh, and then finally, there's just the fact that, you know, lawyers are traditional and, you know, we, we do things the way we've, we've always done it. But, you know, it's not really unique to lawyers. I mean, generally, you know, one of the things Clayton Christensen figured out is it's very hard for uh, legacy companies or, or firms of any kind that have been successful doing what they're doing to change to a different way of doing things. And it's not because they're pig-headed or stupid. It's because they are doing exactly what their customers want. They're doing exactly what maximizes revenue. And so the, the people that come in and change things are always, you know, uh, outsiders. You know, for example, you know, Apple Computer came in and invented the personal computer. You know, the many computer makers of, of the time, you know, Data General, DEC, were in a much better position to sort of make smaller computers. But it didn't really fit their business model. You know, their business model was to design a computer from the ground up with a unique operating system and you know, design their own chips and sell these to a certain level of company that needed a certain level of computer with a certain kind of software. And the idea of having a $500 or $1,000 box just was not going to float their boat. It wasn't going to make enough money for them. So Apple came in with what at the beginning was a ridiculously underpowered toy computer, but it got enough of a market that it got better and better and better. And it gradually drove the, uh, 
all of the mini computer companies out of the market. You know, the PC just took that market from the bottom up. And that's what I think the big law firms need to be concerned about is that, uh, and, and maybe not the very, very best law firms, but the ones that sort of handle generic legal services, stuff that matters and you need a good law firm to do it, but it's not bet the company, they're at real risk. Uh, you know, things like blockchain and artificial intelligence, uh, you know, have the potential to take away a good chunk of their business, you know, in the relatively near future. Indeed. A, a final and related topic I'd like to ask you about is the disruption of law schools and legal education, um, perhaps in response to some of the same dynamics. Now, if I can, you have written on this topic uh, that like a zombie, law schools stagger forward reliant on a vision from a past life, ignoring today's diverse world of legal services and the pervasive changes wrought by the rise of the administrative state. So how should law schools be redesigned? Well, yeah, that's a hard question. Um, and, and I think there are multiple answers. So the law school that we have in the United States today was designed by Christopher Columbus Langdell, really in 1870 and the years after that. And it was fundamentally designed to train someone who was going to be a generalist lawyer in a small firm, because that's what they had then. You know, you'd go to Lowell, Massachusetts, you'd practice with your father or your brother, and you would handle everything from, uh, you know, acquiring real estate to small litigation to personal uh, estates. And the first year curriculum trains you to do that. Uh, that's not the law world we live in anymore. You know, people now go to huge firms. They are highly specialized uh, and we don't train for that. And it would be hard to train for that because we don't know uh, and the students don't know what they're, what they're going to do. But I think the, the, the bigger issue is, is just getting away from thinking about law school as we're training lawyers. And again, to go back to what does society need and to step back and think, Society needs legal services. You know, society needs rule of law. It's very important to our society to have effective legal services. Well, if we are going to provide that to society and we're the educational institutions charged with that, what should we be doing? What kind of product should we be offering? What kind of trained specialist should we be providing? And I think the answer going forward in a world of specialization, in a world of technology, is pretty clearly not just lawyers. Because, you know, you know, we train someone, and I went to law school with people who are assistant U.S. attorneys or, you know, U.S. attorneys doing criminal law all the time, other people who, uh, you know, do nothing but huge mergers and acquisitions, other people who become small-town lawyers. We had the same education for radically different, you know, professional skills. I think there's a lot of legal services that can be offered by non-lawyers, particularly assisted with technology, and we ought to be training for that. We ought to be saying, uh, when can technology make someone good enough that they can guide someone through an immigration process, for example? When can technology, uh, coupled with a certain amount of education, and enable someone to be a good uh, specialist in legal compliance within a corporation or a nonprofit? Because uh, you don't need all of law school to become a compliance specialist. And you do need other skills that law school doesn't offer, like statistical analysis. So we should be thinking about what other kinds of professionals should we be training? If you go to a medical center, they may have a school of nursing separate from the medical school, but they are thinking about what kinds of professionals and paraprofessionals do we need to meet the needs of society. And they're training them all with different degree programs. 
Uh, we need to think that lawyers are the solution to every legal services problem. We need to get away from that and start thinking about how would we design, you know, people uh, in many cases supplemented by technology to solve legal problems for the good of society. Yes, and it comes back to that question of of the underserved segments of society, doesn't it? That if if what you term a good enough non-lawyer is is available, but the alternative is no legal advice at all uh, for certain people who who maybe can't afford uh, the best legal advice, then that that would be a step forward. Final question: uh, What are you working on these days, Ray? Well. Um... You know, I, 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 I split my research between civil procedure and law and innovation. So I've got a, I'm writing a textbook for my students on American civil procedure for non-U.S. lawyers, for people who will never practice in the U.S. for the most part. What do you need to know about American uh, legal, uh, you know, litigation system? And it turns out quite a lot, but it ought to be presented differently and ought to, you know, different things should be stressed. So I've got that book teaching it for the second year, and I'm almost ready to put that up on the Harvard H2O platform and let it go to the world. Uh, I did some work on personal jurisdiction. I think I might do some more, but I'm also thinking online dispute resolution. Uh, I've started work on a, on, a, on a paper that really will look at what we talked a little bit about earlier, which is uh, you know, the architecture of the courts, uh, the role of the courts in projecting the power of the state, and how do we think about that in the context of online courts? And the answer is, 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 is gotta be something more than, well, we just give up. It's gotta be, what would you do in an online environment to successfully uh, communicate the, the important and good parts of what you get when you walk into a room with lots of wood paneling and you know, a priest-like figure sitting up on a dais. You know? uh, I mean, that's important to people. I mean, we, we do it that way because it matters. I mean, it communicates something. So it's silly in a way, but it but it's not. And so, how do we go online and and help people understand the uh, you know the dignity of of what's involved here and the importance of what's involved here in an online environment? So that's what I'm trying to puzzle through right now. Terrific. Well, Ray Campbell, thank you very much for the discussion. Stephen, thank you for inviting me. This has been a lot of fun. And thank you very much for tuning in. Until next time, stay safe. <laughs>